Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova Said, and this is an East European Studies podcast. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Phillips, author of Disability and Mobile Citizenship uh, in Post-Socialist Ukraine. Dr. Phillips is Professor of Anthropology at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her previous... Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova Said, and this is an East European Studies podcast. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Phillips, author of Disability and Mobile Citizenship uh, in Post-Socialist Ukraine. Dr. Phillips is Professor of Anthropology at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her previous publications also include a book-length study, Women's Social Activism in, in the New Ukraine. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Natalia, for the invitation. Uh, the book we are discussing today opens up a, a vast area of questions, as the topic itself is multi-leveled. It includes not only social concerns, but political, historical, economic, cultural. It also touches upon the identity formation, mentality specifics, the individual and the nation in general. I would also like to add that your research offers insights into, into psychology. A number of episodes and cases that you describe in this book are very moving. Tell us about your journey to this publication. What triggered your interest? How did it develop? Why did you choose Ukraine as a study case? Sure. Wow. That's a, a very complex and, and, and wonderful question that lead, could lead me down all kinds of avenues. So thank you for that. I have been doing research in Ukraine for almost all of my academic career. So uh, this particular study, as you as you mentioned in your introduction, was was preceded by other work mm-hmm. that I carried out in Ukraine on issues of gender, issues of health. Um, I have studied the Chernobyl nuclear accident and effects on on health and people's thinking about health and medicine. And I've also been very interested in social movements in Ukraine. So this particular project on uh, people with disabilities and the disability rights movement really follows on the heels of a lot of my previous research. And in some ways... I see it as the culmination of many of my uh, my different interests. Um, the ways that I got uh, connected to the communities of people with disabilities in Ukraine um, is that for my previous study, which was my PhD dissertation in anthropology, Uh, which I completed at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. My dissertation was focused on the life stories of women in Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union who had gotten into social activism and community organizing. So for that first book that you mentioned, um, which was a book that emerged from my dissertation on uh, women's social activism in the new Ukraine, 
there was a handful of, of women whose lives of social activism I followed, and I got to know them and their families and their organizations and their communities very well. So, um, for instance, one uh, of the organizations was a support group for families living in the capital city of Kiev who had so-called large families. So fam families comprised of three or more children um, was, was a group that they targeted for um, support because uh, it, in the sort of waves of economic crisis after Ukrainian independence, they had identified uh, these large families as in particular um, need, as, as having a very precarious existence and needing support. So that was one example. But another example that is more relevant to the current project is that I met um, a woman who was a social activist, and she had... Uh, founded an organization to uh, bring attention to the the problems and the needs and the contributions, frankly, of uh, people who had suffered traumatic spinal cord injury. Um, she founded this organization, as she put it, to save her own son's life. So her son was 16. Um, in the book, I call him Sasha. In the book, I call her Zoya. Those are not their real names. Mm -hmm. um, but he was 16. He had a diving accident, um, broke his neck, and uh, became a quadriplegic. And so um, she was really... Um, devastated uh, by this accident and what had happened to her son, but she was also very determined to do what she could to um, garner resources for him, um, help him survive, first of all, the trauma and get some rehabilitation, and then hopefully help him uh, finish his education, get employed, and so on. So she founded this organization, and I profiled that organization Somewhat, I really only touched on their organization, which I call Lotus, in that first book, um, very briefly. But it was through my connection with this woman, Zoya, and her son, Sasha, that um, really opened up for me this entire, at that time, kind of hidden world of people with disabilities um, in uh, post-socialist Ukraine. And this would have been... Let me think when I first met this family. I think I first met them in 1997. So this was the late 90s. Uh, and I have been following their story ever since. So I can't believe I'm saying this almost, well, more than 20 years now. <laughs> I've been in touch with Zoya and, and Sasha, and um, they have become, you know, good friends. But they really opened up for me this world of disability in a post-socialist country, and um, it's a world that at the time, and it would be interesting to hear if they would still characterize it this way, but at the time they, they referred to themselves as living in a parallel world. Mm -hmm. They felt like the world of having a disability, being a person with a disability, being a family with a disability, um, very rarely intersected with the world of quote-unquote non-disabled or quote-unquote normal people without disabilities. So that's, that's how I came to the, to the 
to the project, and I'm I'm it really brought together my interests in health issues, mm-hmm. my interest in social policy, and how states are reshaping social policy after um, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, redefining citizenship, redefining what it means to be a um, citizen in these states of the former Soviet Union. Um, It it also touched on my interest in gender. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the book focuses on difference in uh, the experiences between men and women with disabilities. Um, And it was also very much an ethnographic project. You know, as an anthropologist, I'm really interested in people's stories. I'm interested in their narratives and how they narrate their experiences. So um, all of that came came together in this project. Yeah, I I would like um, to discuss the term disability a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, In the introduction, you outline a theoretical scope and um, provide definitions of the terms that are central for this research. And um, disability or disable have other equivalents in Ukrainian, and it's invalidnist or invalid, which actually means not able or uh, nepredatny. And this term became official during the Soviet period. Uh, And um, I would say it was probably ingrained in the consciousness of uh, Soviet people as well. And invalidnist is always associated with some stigma that produces uh, for an individual numerous limitations. Um, And I guess I'm combining two questions here, (laughs) the history of the term invalidnist. And you also mentioned a linguistic tradition that goes back to the uh, Russian Empire, uh, when uh, people with disabilities, uh, mental in particular, were described as Mm-hmm. And uh, another question, probably this one is a little bit broader, uh, the Soviet heritage in terms of disability policies. And there is, I have one quote <laughs> from uh, your book. It's page 15. However, with the Bolshevik Revolution and the establishment of the Soviet state and the formal system of classification and administration of disability, the meaning of um, invalid changed to designate those Soviet citizens who had lost the capacity to work. So which means those people who are not who were um, not um, useful anymore. Mm-hmm. So there was some like a very instrumental approach to the um, understanding of an individual. Yes, yes, absolutely. You've really, um, Natalia, honed in on some very important um, points that I was I was trying to make in the book and some important developments. Uh, in in official thinking about what it means to uh, be an invalid or have invalidness or ha- or be a person with a disability, and then um, I guess more um, activist thinking, mm-hmm. more more sort of uh, first person uh, experiences and negotiations of that. So let me just say a little bit about terminology. It's so interesting that you would um, bring that up because that. Is um, that is an area where even since the book was published um, in 2011, we have seen uh, actually a lot of changes in Ukraine, both officially and in the popular discourse, um, and in particular in activist circles. So now, as far as I understand, um, with Ukraine having adopted the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of People with Disabilities um, in 2009, 
now in any official reference to disability policy, uh, the word invalid should not be used. Really? Yes, in official uh, papers, mm-hmm. discourse, mm-hmm. Uh, anything. Um, it should be replaced with the term person with a disability. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that means Chileviex invalidnestu or Ludinas sinvalidnestu. And I, I, I do know that uh, people first language is very much preferred in many activist circles. And so there's really a move towards not using identifiers or labels like invalid or spinalnik, so-called broken-backed person, I guess, or um, vizochnik, mm-hmm, which would mm-hmm. mean wheelchair user, um, in, in public discourse and particularly uh, for activists, there's a, a real move away from that kind of, of self-identification and identifying others uh, with these labels and a move towards um, people first language like person with a disability or person who uses a wheelchair, person with a spinal cord injury. Um, so that, that is, a, that is a, a big difference that um, I have really noticed in the last few years. That's not to say that there isn't still a lot of debate <laughs> about terminology. And, of course, people have the right to refer to themselves however mm-hmm. they want to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, some people uh, are more comfortable with, with identifying themselves with certain categories, certain labels, and, and actually do not appreciate the kind of um, what they might see as top-down, uh, you know, directive or admonishment mm-hmm. uh, to change the way that they speak or refer to disability. But it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing conversation. Um, yes. So that's sort of uh, thinking about uh, terminology and how it's evolved and continues to evolve. And the heritage of the Soviet Union, uh, how they imposed this kind of understanding that those people who have, yes. who had some kind of disability, they were not just useful right. <laughs> for the society, and it was quite exclusive. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. And as you know, um, again, this was a very uneven process. And so there are historians, you know, of disability in the Soviet Union that have have looked at how this this process of the Soviet state kind of sorting, Mm. you know, people, um, sorting different categories according to the state's definition of um, who was able to work, who was not able to work, um, what kinds of characteristics would lead someone to be able to um, take care of themselves versus needing um, right? Um, outside help. Um, and there are some very interesting exceptions here too, right? So anytime you sort of see a rule, <laughs> you also see an exception. So there, there are stories of people with disabilities who were very successful, you know, in the Soviet Union, um, uh, and who uh, didn't quite fit the the, the mold of the the kind of um, 
you know, exclusion, uh, dejection, kind of demeaning of um, people with disabilities that maybe um, characterize more more broadly what, what most people were experiencing. So I, I want to acknowledge those exceptions mm-hmm. is why I'm saying this. Um, but yes, there was a classification system. Um, uh, there still is in Ukraine, although it has been um, it has been modified. It has been uh, amended uh, in the Soviet Union that that classed people into Group One, Group Two, or Group Three, so-called invalids, um, based on their level of uh, impairment, basically. Uh, and sometimes this uh, meant that there were actually some uh, groups of people with disability who had quite good access to uh, employment and job training. There's some really uh, interesting work that's being done uh, right now by historians and um, folks in, in cultural studies looking at uh, collectives of uh, people with hearing disabilities or the deaf community in the Soviet Union and the work collectives that they uh, formed and were very successful at also uh, communities of people with sight impairments um, along the same lines. So there were there were ways in which in the Soviet Union certain groups of, uh, of people with disabilities uh, formed communities, uh, formed cultures of their own, and, and oftentimes that did involve a work aspect. You know, it was, after all, the workers' state. So um, defining oneself and one's social, work through, social worth through work um, what was very important in that context. Um, for those who weren't so uh, lucky uh, and were not able to prove themselves um, able to work or were not deemed as able to work according to the state's definition, um, unfortunately, as many of my interviewees uh, would say, um, those, those, those people were... Um, and this is to quote from one of my one of my friends: given a pension, given a disability pension, and a license to do nothing. So, oftentimes that 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 meant that they uh, were expected to um, survive on a very small disability pension, um, did not have opportunities for uh, job training or employment, uh, and often uh, just were not in the public eye. Were sequestered away either in uh, families or um, maybe in an institution. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the legacy uh, that, that some folks are dealing with. Um, and it's, it's really these um, stigmatized notions of uh, what it means to have a disability, what it means to be disabled, um, how having a disability figures into one's uh, sort of worth as a citizen that a lot of uh, disability rights groups now in Ukraine are trying to address, right? So there's a lot of work to do, and it's and it's being done um, to undo mm-hmm. some of these 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 legacies of. Um, kind of socialist approaches to to disability. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was curious about the title of the book uh, because it contains some uh, uh, like protesting stance <laughs> against uh, the prejudices that disability evokes. Uh, disability, more often than not, means lack of or complete absence of mobility. Uh, so could you tell us a few words about the meaning of the title that you chose? Yes, mm -hmm. so the title is, just to remind our listeners, <laughs> Disability and Mobile Citizenship in post-socialist Ukraine. And um, the, the title really signals what, for me, I hope is one of the major theoretical contributions of the book. Uh, there has been a lot of very interesting anthropological work of late on citizenship, uh, how citizenship is defined uh, in different uh, political, socioeconomic contexts. And there's been, in particular, a lot of very interesting work on what does it mean to be a citizen in countries like Ukraine and Russia um, after the fall of socialist regimes. So I'm, I'm tapping into that literature and those discussions on um, citizen-state relations, really, and how those are being reworked. And um, I, I use, I, I, I try to coin mm -hmm. the term uh, mobile citizenship um, to show uh, how people with disabilities are tapping into innovative ways to define themselves as deserving, worthy, contributive, productive citizens in this new political, economic landscape um, in ways that maybe go against the notion that um, having a disability means that one cannot be physically mobile, um, but, but maybe more importantly, that one cannot be socially mobile. So it's kind of, it's kind of a play on words. Mm -hmm. um, and it also comes from the fact that the, the major population that I studied uh, in my book is really the, the, the category or the, the group, the profile of people with disabilities who are, are probably most visible in the country, um, both physically and discursively. Um, for historical reasons, uh, people with mobility disabilities, um, including um, people who use wheelchairs, have really been at the forefront of the disability rights uh, movement. And so this is a population that I, I focus on in the book. And so this notion of mobility mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. becomes particularly important um, because we are talking both about physical mobility and the accessibility of the built mm -hmm. environment, but we're also talking about social mobility and um, disrupting negative social attitudes mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, putting, you know, the, the rights and uh, the responsibilities and the contributions of people with um, all kinds of disabilities kind of front and center as we look at um, how social policy um, and definitions of citizenship have been revamped. Mm -hmm. And probably um, this notion of mobility um, also includes some um, personal mobility uh, because uh, those stories that you describe, they are about people who actually lost their previous lives, so figur figuratively speaking, uh, metaphorically 
metaphorically speaking, and they developed like new understanding of their own selves and new understanding of their friends. They lost their old friends. They acquired new friends. So would you tell us a few words about those stories that you actually included into your research, how that network developed? Sure, mm -hmm. sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, you're, 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 you're perfectly on point, Natalia, that, uh, you know, the, the, the often traumatic experiences that, that people had and, and, and the people in, in the book became, um, disabled at different times in their life cycles. But, um, overall, yes, it's a, it's a very much a, a life changing, um, experience that, uh, leads people to talk about their lives before, trauma and after trauma, or before disability and after disability. Um, I, I mentioned the story of Zoya and, and Sasha, and uh, I've really come to see that story actually um, as very indicative of the fact, and I think it's, it, it still rings true in Ukraine today, that uh, family support uh, is absolutely critical to um, kind of predicting and shaping uh, what a person's quality of life is going to be like after a, a traumatic injury, like a spinal cord injury. And uh, so, you know, Zoya uh, was a successful engineer. She had uh, a very active social life. Uh, she's just a, an amazing... Uh, interlocutor. She has so many interests and so many things that she loves to talk about. So she was, she's a very vibrant person uh, and had a lot going on. Uh, but when her son, Sasha, had his accident, uh, she dropped everything. I mean, she really, she, she, her career was over. Um, her husband, uh, they're more or less back together now, but the, mm -hmm. the marriage had some very rocky um, times. Uh, after, after the trauma, but um, uh, you know, she really uh, restructured her entire existence uh, to take care of Sasha. To, like I said, found this organization and get the uh, resources that he needed. Um, an important thing about Zoya, though, is that she had so many friends that she could bring on board. So this again shows the importance of social networks, right? Um, uh, so tapping into one's existing networks um, for uh, advice, assistance was really important for her. She recognized that, and she also recognized her, well, I guess Sasha's need for advice and understanding uh, from people who had been in his situation. And she realized that there wasn't a strong network of people who had been through traumatic spinal cord injury um, that he could rely on. And so that became one of their organization's priorities, actually, was forming a uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer network. Uh, so that was, that was a really important um, function that their organization... Uh, fulfilled. I, I, I think this is a good time to mention actually that a lot of the efforts of these early uh, 
organizers in the disability rights movement in Ukraine were very impacted and inspired by colleagues who uh, had come from abroad. Mm-hmm. So uh, at this time, again, it's the um, you know late 80s, early 90s, and then mid 90s when uh, when Zoya and uh, Sasha were 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 most active, I would say. Um, and it was, you know, his trauma was newer at that time. Um, they were in touch with uh, so-called, so proponents of a of a, a form of social empowerment and and personal empowerment called active rehabilitation or AR, who uh, came from Sweden and from the Netherlands and from Canada. So there was a lot of. Um, you know, really productive, really fruitful collaboration between these groups uh, from these other countries uh, and uh, people with disabilities in Ukraine, in Russia, in Poland. And uh, she got a lot of um, her ideas uh, from them. And, of course, for me as an anthropologist, it was interesting to look at you know how she, how she decided what aspects of these philosophies of active rehabilitation and independent living were pertinent for Ukraine and would work, and which ones she decided uh, you know weren't weren't quite matching up with local realities, and how she kind of um, she and other activists pieced together uh, what they knew, their reality, and then uh, the inspiration and ideas that they got from their colleagues abroad. Mm-hmm. What's the role or function of the state in this process of uh, uh, developing new approaches to uh-huh. this kind of policy? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting question. Um, the There is a, a very important figure in the disability rights movement, um, a, a, a politician and lawmaker um, called Valery Sushkevich. And uh, really, in in many ways, I I see the the, the disability rights movement as having um, coalesced around uh, Sushkevich, who has held lots of different uh, positions in the various um, administrations that have um, you know run Ukraine political administrations. Um, since the 90s, um, he was a member of parliament. He was head of the, so, the Inva Sport, so-called um, committee for, for sports. He's he-, he was, I think he still is, head of the Paralympic committee. Um, at present, I believe he is still the uh, advisor to the president of Ukraine on disability issues. So he is a very, very central figure, and he has been very supportive of um, lots of these initiatives um, uh, that I've been talking about. He uh, really legislative reform uh, right after the fall of the Soviet Union um, started with Sushkevich. He authored some of the new new laws, um, the new disability protections um, that people saw. He has been involved in um, forming a coalition of disability rights organizations and really instantiating this um, program of active rehabilitation 
into state rehabilitation programs for people with um, traumatic spinal injuries. So um, in many ways, this, this linkage, right, that the activist communities have to the Ukrainian state through Sushkevich has been very productive because it means that the energy, the ideas, the kind of best practices are being funneled into state programs and state approaches. It can also be somewhat problematic in having um, so much influence um, concentrated in one uh, individual or in one group, sort of team, you know, Sushkevich and his team. So it's, it's a model that is not without its detractors and not without um, some potential pitfalls and problems. But um, it, it, it does mean that, um, you know, ideas aren't just sort of tried out and tested out and then uh, peter away, uh, but that best practices are indeed being um, funneled over into the, the, the state's evolving approach um, to rehabilitation, um, education, job training. So I think there's actually a lot to be said for this kind of... Um, centralization um, in many ways, although not everyone is happy about it, of course. <laughs> so you, you traveled numerous times to Ukraine when completing this um, research, mm-hmm. and uh, you were probably observing all these changes. Um, but still, um, there are a lot of challenges today. Uh, for example, uh, even in terms of equipment, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I, I don't remember... Uh, any bus in Ukraine actually which is equipped with some special facilities for those people who can get on the bus uh, on their own. Uh, in terms of education probably as well, I, I, I'm not saying that it's completely impossible to get an education for, 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 for a person with some disabilities, but still um, that's what I'm curious about. In your uh, research you mentioned this concept of staring. Uh, when people are stared at, and this act kind of excludes them from other um, from others, so to speak. So, and I thought that it's very um, it's very interesting because um, uh, well, when I was an undergraduate, um, I also saw people pursuing degrees with disabilities, but mm-hmm. there was some sense of loneliness around them, and it, it's true that they were like excluded by this gazing. Mm-hmm. So uh, how can this um, maybe, um, uh, how this element, which is connected probably with mentality, be shifted in your in your opinion? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great question. If I can quickly return to the first part of your remarks about ac- accessibility and particularly uh, accessible transport, it's still a huge problem. Um, there are a couple, well, I shouldn't say how many because I haven't been keeping track lately, but there are increasing numbers of uh, accessible buses, trolley buses, trams in major Ukrainian cities. Um, there is now a, a wheelchair accessible fast train, for mm-hmm. example, from Kiev to Lviv. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is wonderful um, for those who can afford the fast train. As you know, there are different, um, you know, if you can, yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the the question of accessible transport is one that has been taken up on the national level, but I would say even more so at the municipal level. 
And so it's very interesting how Lviv, which, as you know, is a historical city, cobblestone streets, you know, in the, in the center, and uh, would not appear to be very disability-friendly, thanks to uh, the efforts of uh, some uh, municipal, well, regional and municipal um, elected officials, has actually done a, a, a wonderful job of uh, lobbying for and getting um, accessible transport for, for people who have mobility and, and other kinds of, of disabilities. So um, that's one argument that I make in the book is that um, sort of the example of these activists and their success in Lviv really shows the importance of getting people who understand disability issues elected into local offices. Right, um, so positions of power at, at local levels. Um, so that's sort of an aside to your question. But actually, I the the the, the problem that you're talking about in terms of um, you know disability people with disabilities being looked at as so different. Um, maybe stigmatized, maybe they're they're pitied, right? They they look lonely. Um, part of the problem is that even today you see so few of them, right? Yes. And so and that is connected not only to social perceptions, right? Um, a fear of going out in public. It's connected to accessibility, right? The, the ability to actually get around right, um, and actually um, occupy public spaces, right, and participate in social life. And so that's one of the things I was um, trying to get at in the book by highlighting the creative ways in which uh, some of the disability rights organizations that I, I worked with, particularly those for youth, I would say, um, really creatively, creatively inserted themselves into the public eye and uh, took it upon themselves uh, to you know, to go out on the main thoroughfare in Kiev, um, to 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 show themselves to people, to get out, shake some hands, make some friends, um, really make a social connection, so that as they said, um, you know, people could meet a quote unquote real live person with a disability, right? Um, part of the problem is that with the you know the social segregation that is characterized life for people with disabilities in places like Ukraine is that your, you know, quote, regular citizen very rarely um, has much opportunity to interact with a person with a disability. So I think that kind of intervention is really important. And um, that's, again, one of the reasons that the, the disability rights movement um, has really prioritized uh, lobbying for accessible public spaces, accessible transport, um, not only so that people can travel to, you know, college, travel to the university campus, um, travel to work, um, but that they can occupy public space and participate in, in social life and put themselves out there as, you know, full-fledged um, citizens. So 
one of the recommendations that I that I made in the book is that you know groups should um, tap into more such opportunities, right? To um, to to facilitate these face to face interactions, and I think as inclusive education grows. Um, and it is growing, however slowly, <laughs> in Ukraine um, now. Uh, a, a child with a disability does have the right uh, to study in a so-called regular school. Um, so legislatively, that is the right. Um, whether or not that's being enforced, and whether or not those laws are being supported financially, is a whole other question. Um, but I think as uh, you know, school children start to um, enjoy the benefits of inclusive education um, as accessible transport and public spaces increase, and there's just more, you know, social mixing. Mm -hmm. I think that um, that can make make a big difference um, and help people see that, you know, disability is just one form of difference across the diversity of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of human experience, um, and so I'm I'm really hopeful that that that's going to uh, to 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 progress um, in a positive way. Um, I've been very impressed by the efforts of um, a young woman who, until very recently, was a, a news broadcaster on uh, News One in Ukraine. Her name's. Uh, Uliana Picholkina and her husband is Vitaly Picholkin. They're both uh, vibrant young disability rights activists who are wheelchair users, and um, I believe that Uliana is really the public face of disability in Ukraine uh, right now. Uh, she She's very um, active and savvy in social media, so she's on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, she's done public service announcements talking about, um, you know, being a woman, uh, with a disability and and encouraging others to get out in the public eye. So I think more efforts like that, uh, could really, uh, be helpful. Um, Ukraine has been so very successful in the Paralympic competitions, (laughs) uh, particularly uh, in the last Paralympic Games. I mean, they did so well. um, And it's it's been curious to me that the Paralympic athletes are not uh, involved much at all in the disability rights movement. So Mm -hmm. I think that, again, drawing on the success of the Paralympic Athletics could really, uh, really um, be a boon for public perceptions about um, disability in Ukraine as well. Yeah, well, uh, there is there is a lot to be done in that sphere, but um, I was really impressed with that optimism that. Um, some of these stories like, evoke. Um, and uh, I was curious if uh, your um, future work uh, includes uh, the development of these uh, topics that um, you presented, presented in, this, in this research. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting that, uh, and I'm very excited about this actually, that this spring, so uh, spring of 2018, mm-hmm. 
Um, a translation of the book in Russian is actually being uh, published in uh, Kharkiv, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So that uh, Russian translation includes uh, some new material. Um, so because, mm -hmm. as you know, this book was published in 2011. Um, some things have uh, happened since then, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. Or 2010, I, I, I guess the publication date is on this book. Um, right, so, so that um, Russian language edition includes an afterword, which is an update mm -hmm. on uh, the stories of the people in this book. It's called Where Are They Now? <laughs> and so I track, um, you know, the continuation of their lives and show how, what they've experienced in the last, uh, you know, five, eight years uh, reflects changes in the disability rights movement and the priorities there, but also change, really important changes in Ukrainian mm -hmm society and mm -hmm. politics. Um, we can't forget the fact that uh, Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, is a country at war, and that, of course, uh, the war is producing uh, more and more numbers of, of people with disabilities. So um, there's there's an update in the book. There is a foreword by my uh, colleague uh, at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, Yelena Yarskaya-Smirnova, who was who really pioneered disability studies in Russia? So I was I was delighted and very gratified that she agreed to write the preface to the book. Um, so so that's something uh, to look forward to. I hope to be able to um, travel with the book in Ukraine mm -hmm. and in Russia and give some public presentations about the book um, in next spring and fall. So that's really exciting. Well, congratulations on that new edition and on the translation. That I think it's very, it's it's very exciting because uh, this uh, book uh, gives some hope and some uh, some encouragement. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and thank you for your research and for sharing the stories of the people who have incredible inner strength and desire for life. And this research helps to maintain a conversation about, about love and care, not only in the local context, but in the global context as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Natalia.